Welcome to the Air Force Doctrine Podcast. My name is Nicholas Underwood. On this episode, I took Colonel Retired Matt L. Sid Nuenswander out to lunch in historic downtown Montgomery. He discussed his role in Operation Anaconda in March of 2002, and we decided to record a podcast right there in the restaurant. For background, L. Sid currently serves as a Director of Joint Integration for the LeMay Center, which functions as an Air Force Doctrine Liaison to Army's TRADOC and the Combined Arms Center at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. But going back to March 2002, L. Sid, an active duty colonel at the time, was selected to stand up a contingency operating location in Jacobabad, Pakistan, to support A-10 aircraft that had been rapidly deployed to support heavy and unexpected resistance from enemy fighters in Operation Anaconda. Operation Anaconda was a U.S. operation in the Shaikat Valley in Afghanistan in March of 2002. Numerous lessons learned have been pulled from the operation. Most notably, from the Air Force perspective, was the late notice of the operation requiring rapid spin-up of Air Force support. The ground force also encountered heavier-than-expected resistance, which made close air support all the more critical. Despite these setbacks, soldiers and airmen performed admirably. The stories of these airmen are covered in Mark Havasa's podcast, Lessons from the Cockpit, linked in our description. El Cid and I discuss his lessons learned on leadership, mission command, and risk from his personal experience of setting up forward operating bases or contingency locations, first at Jacobabad, Pakistan, and subsequently at Bagram Air Force Base, Afghanistan. Please join us. El Cid, thanks so much for being here. Right now, the hot topic is mission command. And so I'll sit with your experience in, in Anaconda and, and many years working in Doctrine at the joint level over at uh, Leavenworth. I think this is going to be very good. I'll sit, if you kind of give us some backdrop, how you ended up in Anaconda, the places you went and some of the challenges there. What I'd like to do is take that and maybe we'll pull that apart inside of a mission command. Obviously, Air Force wasn't operating under the mission command as, as directly as we are now. But I think there's a lot of things that we got from Mark Havasa, from Mark's podcast, that we can really pull apart and start to understand things like discipline, initiative, and prudent risk, just some of the challenges you face. So can you kind of give us a 10-minute on the Anaconda? So Anaconda started on the 2nd of March, 2002. But prior to that, in, in the preceding week, about three days prior to the event, the AOC actually found out about planning and and I won't go into all the discussions there's been a number of articles written about how the planning could have been better and who supported who but I was the deputy commander at uh, Al Jabber of the 332nd Air Expeditionary Group at the time and we began discussing how we would support Anaconda in in the operation about midweek or or the last of February of 2001. So the initial intent was we had Strike Eagles, F-16s, HC, or the Rescue C-130s, A-10s, and H-860s at Al Jabber. And our primary role was supporting JTF SWA in Iraq, but we were also tasked and had been tasked to support air interdiction and close air support for operations in Afghanistan with our first operation starting about the 3rd of October. And we went pretty hot and heavy through, you know, the battles up north, Mazari Sharif, and, and then we were involved in the taking of Kanduz and Kandahar and Bagram. And then as the Northern Alliance and the Taliban 
moved south with the Northern Alliance being our allies. Everything pretty much stopped around the end of November, and, and then Tora Bora happened. Mm -hmm. And when Tora Bora happened, they thought maybe Osama bin Laden was up there, and that he had somehow bought off some of the Allies, and people were frustrated by that. And the conventional army started to get a plan when they realized that maybe the senior leadership was in the Shahikat, and they would put a ring around them with Soft being the hammer, and the conventional forces composed of the 101st and 10th Mountain Division being the anvil and the Shahikat. So the primary role of air power in the beginning of the event was to hit some of the cave complexes and places where they thought there might be mortars and stuff like that. And so the planning that we got involved in at Al Jabber was for our F-16s and our Strike Eagles to use some special munitions in order to take out some of those places that the AOC had determined were a threat. And so this is this is leading up to Anaconda. This is well, so this is the plan that's happening the twenty seventh of yeah. February. Happening in a rush, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean kind of at the last minute. Basically the plan was for us to prepare the battle space so that at about seven o'clock in the morning there would be an air assault, the army would land in there, and then everything after that would be close air support. As we've heard the story, once Anaconda goes, the the Mountain Division gets in, the company was soft, nothing goes really to plan. They're, they show up and the enemy does not run away. They stand and fight, and now we have to get additional CAS assets in there. And so this is, I think, where you really start losing sleep, as I understand it. So Saturday morning, I'm in the what what we call the EOC, the Expeditionary Operations Center, the, the senior officer on duty in our, in our group operations center, and I'm listening to this battle go very bad. Okay, and I'm listening on Satcom to the battle go bad, and bottom line, most of the Army helicopters get shot up in in the first hour or so. The Northern Alliance with our soft forces doesn't attack into the valley because a couple hours before that, an AC-130 had fratted a soft unit. When they did that, the AOC calls a global knock it off. And as a result, not many of the bombs that the 332nd was planning on dropping to set the conditions occurred. And then the Northern Alliance looks at that and says, well, hey, you were going to bomb the place, but you didn't. So we're not going in there. But the Army made the decision to go ahead and land the conventional forces in there and things did not go particularly well for them from that point. So on Saturday, we already had done everything we could and through the night on Saturday night, we were discussing what was going to happen and on Sunday, we made a decision to cancel everything, cancel all the flying in Iraq and focus everybody on supporting as many as we could get down there with the tankers, Strike Eagles and F-16s, to support the fight going on in the Shalikot. And so we quadrupled the amount of airplanes that we had planned to send down. So all day Sunday, my boss was flying one of the F-16 sorties, Colonel Dave Nichols, and I was again on the desk. We suggested that if we pulled everyone on alert, this is how many airplanes we could get up based on the tankers, and the AOC bought that. So we sent guys that were going to fly in Iraq back to bed so that they could fly and support basically Sunday evening of Anaconda. 
And so I was up very late on Sunday evening. I was ready to go to bed. Went to get in the shower. My boss had just landed and they called me in and they said, you're taking the A-10s to Anaconda. And I said, where are we going? And they said, we don't know yet. So one of the interesting things about Mission Command is when they talk about commander's guidance, I think many times commanders know what they need, but they don't know what they want. And so what they said to me was, we need you to be able to give us at least two hours on station over a period of time with multiple aircraft. And here's the four or five bases you potentially could do that from. Let us know where you could do it from. Fortunately, I had done some planning previously in October to support the, the raid into what was known as Rhino, where Sheikh Momar was. And we thought we were going to end up taking the A-10s forward and couldn't get any diplomatic clearance from any of the countries. But I saved all of that planning. And General Eisenhower once said, I'm paraphrasing here, but he, he basically said, plans are nothing, but planning is indispensable. We kept those plans, and I pretty much knew, having been through this drill before, there was only one place on Earth that I could go and give them what they wanted. And so within two hours, I reconfirmed that and said, we must go to Jacobabad, Pakistan, if that's what you want. And so myself and a couple of the A-10 guys planned all night. And I had said to the guys in the EOC, okay, this is how much airlift I'm going to need. You know, I basically gave them this big laundry list of stuff I needed, trying to figure out how many airplanes we were sending and what munitions. So I was making decisions that night without the guidance from the AOC in order to provide cast to the 10th Mountain 101st Airborne guys down there because I was the senior A-10 pilot in the theater at the time. And, and so I felt like I had enough background to make the decision on what we needed to do to provide cast out there. As an example, when I talked to the Intel personnel, we decided it was predominantly an area fight. So rather than a bunch of Maverick missiles, we selected 500 pound bombs with radar fuses because what we were trying to do is to shoot a shotgun at the side of the mountain when you think about it and preclude somebody from shooting mortars down into the valley as opposed to, I can't see them one person, but if you can get me close enough with smoke or a laser or something like that, then I can suppress this and, and stop them. So that night we made decisions and that next morning, though, we launched our guys out without diplomatic clearance to land in Pakistan. And we gave them a bunch of different options. Before we go there, when it, you talked about you're making a lot of decisions without additional guidance. In this position, are you in command authority or are you just having to, you know what needs to be done and you're, you're working through that? Because it's happening really fast. There's not a chance to go ask your boss every 10 seconds. And so I think a lot of that the idea of figuring out what needs to be done. And I know I'm the, the SME in this area. I'm just going to, to make it happen. I, I think that mentality is worth exploring a little bit. So my boss, Colonel Dave Nichols, got a call from Admiral Dave Nichols, who was the deputy CFAC, and said, come up with a plan to take them forward and then call down here. And so I was getting approval for different things about every hour from the three in the AOC. So the constant communication. Constant yeah. communication. But I wasn't spending a lot of time providing guidance. I told the weapons officer and some other guys, this is what I need you to do. I need you to put these packages together. 
but I don't know if this is where we're going to be able to go. And so we ended up with several options. Once they finally, about four o'clock in the morning, said, okay, Jacobabad's the only option that we can do that, then it took a lot of rocks out of my pack because I can stop planning on trying to fly out of Sib or Karshi Kananabad or, or Manas or other places that, that was going to require a lot more tanker support than we had. And I also didn't know how many aircraft we were going to be able to get tanker support for. One of the things that I will say, and it was a decision that I made early, that the squadron commander was fairly new in theater, but he was an old friend from, from uh, a previous A-10 assignment. And he asked me, because I was the senior A-10 pilot in theater, if I was going to lead this forward. And I said, no, the hard part in this is planning. It's not leading. Take your guys to bed and be back here in 12 hours. I don't want any of them here except for give me three, a weapons officer and two other people, and we'll have a plan in the morning 12 hours from now. I want your whole squadron and crew rest because I don't know how many airplanes they're going to have tankers for tomorrow morning. One of the things that uh, I just listened to MWI, Modern Warfare Institute podcast, and they had something on the Mogadishu uh, battle. And there was a commander there who made a point about the difference between leading from the front. Uh, what that really means is leading from the decisive point. Uh, he said there's, you know, there's, there's a temptation to always be at the front of the battle, which would have been you, you know, fly and lead on this, this mission. But it seems you made the decision, I'd rather lead from the decisive point, the point where it's the most difficult and you need the most authority and experience. I throw that out there because I think that's a really beautiful leadership uh, decision you made there that has it's certainly lessons learned, that uh, idea of leading from the decisive point. Well, I had more experience in theater. I knew the people in the AOC. I knew who I had to talk to. I knew I did have command authority as the deputy granted by my boss over everyone on Al Jabber, which the squadron commander didn't have. So if I would have said, I'm going to go to bed and had someone else do it, I don't think we would have come up with the plan that we did. So anyway, 12 hours later, we've got a plan to go potentially to Jacobabad. So meanwhile, what's happening at four o'clock in the morning is Roberts Ridge, which is part of Anaconda. And, and we're listening to that. And it's like, that ain't going well either. So we're working the options to get our guys over there. And what ended up happening at about six, they told me I could launch two A-10s. That's all they had tankers for. Oh, geez. Yeah. So anyway, so when the guys showed up about 8.30 in the morning, we were able to brief them and we said, okay, we hope you're going to be able to land in Jacobabad, but go ahead and take off. And here's plan A. Plan A is land in Jacobabad. Plan B is declare an emergency and go into Seab. And plan C is fly all the way back here. Oh, man. And all the way back, if they'd have gone down and done a two-hour authority and then turned around and flown back, it would have been a 16-hour mission. Oh, my. You know, most of it would have been at night. So all the waivers, all the crew rest. Interestingly enough, when you talk about risk as part of the mission command, we had all these rules and I called the AOC and I said, do you even want me to talk about waivers for night flying and everything? And they said, no, we don't have time for that. So, so they pretty much blew off the whole risk aspect of that, which I would have done too, but I don't have the authority to do that. I'm not the CFAC. Yeah, it's, it's, that's really great. We talk about, you and I talked a little bit before we started recording here about the idea of prudent risk. And so prudent risk in a lot of people's minds, this is 
the risk versus reward. The mission that you're going to, the high priority of it, seems to immediately trump a lot of the, the risks we have in place. And the AOC is saying, no, I don't even want to talk about that. We're going to do this. Prudent has really been defined for you right there. Like, hey, we need to get out there. We need to support those guys. I'm not worried about some bureaucratic process for waivers. That's a beautiful example. But yeah. you also have to understand as a leader what you have the authority to approve, which frankly, in the Air Force right now, in the regulations at the time, that had to be waived. The, the whole crew thing had to be waived by a MAGCOM commander. Oh, man. And I didn't have the authority <laughs> to do that. So when I asked the question, hey, so do you want me even ask the question? They said no. I see. You know, because there were Americans on the ground that were getting shot at and needed our help. Mm-hmm. So at some point here, Soup Campbell and K-9 end up getting there and they do absolutely fantastic things, not just that first night, but that second night. But at some point, uh, you, with almost no sleep, they say, hey, we need El Cid at Jacobabad. And so this becomes a... a well, so the intent was always that we were going to send a maintenance crew there at Jacobabad, if that, that's where we're going to find out. So about 10 in the morning on Monday, and I haven't been to bed. Yeah. They tell me, you're going to get dip clearance into Jacobabad. And I said, okay, when's my airlift get here? And they said, maybe tomorrow or the next day. And I said, well, wait a second. So are my guys flying one sortie? Who's turning them? Who's reloading them? Who, who is going to rekey their IFFs? You know, who's going to do all this stuff that a modern Air Force requires? And they said, we don't know. There are soft forces there. They'll do as much as they can. They can probably recover them, but we're trying to get you airlift. Now, meanwhile, a lot of the airlift is being used to haul wounded guys out of Bagram because they're, you know, helicoptering them back and all that stuff. In this case, probably the example of disciplined initiative and, and going back to your boss knows what he needs, but not what he wants. We had HC-130 and they were on CSAR alert. And the CSAR alert that the CFAC had was on behalf of CENTCOM. In a previous life, I was the chief of weapons and tactics at Moody Air Force Base, where we had A-10s, F-16s, HC-130s, and H-860. So I'd gone through an ORI with the HC-130s and was very familiar with what their capabilities were. And so I called the three. Okay, here's my proposal get permission from CENTCOM to pull an HC-130 off of alert. I will send their crew back into crew rest right now. And I had done this kind of in the middle of the night. So we had an alert crew from the HC-130 that could fly. And I said, I want your permission to go to Ali Asalim, which was about a 40 mile drive and borrow a winch and 20 seats because an AC-130 doesn't have floor rollers like other cargo aircraft. Right. And if we pull them off alert, we'll take the 1,700-gallon fuel tank out of the back, take about two hours, and then we'll load everything we need for the Advon on ammo trailers, and we'll winch them into the back of the AC-130, and and we'll, we'll use them to get our Advon and turn those airplanes that are down there. They said, do it. <laughs> And so it took about four hours to get the HC-130 ready and all that stuff. And meanwhile, I go to supply. One of the interesting things about deploying from a forward deploying location is 
there was no malaria in Kuwait, right? Because it was desert, but they called Camp Swampy or whatever it was. It was like the probably one of the most mosquito infested places I've ever been in in Pakistan. And so we had to get like mosquito netting and all the stuff for the cots because they didn't have any of that stuff. So I'm putting together, I walked into the supply depot and had a pickup truck <laughs> and said, load that in that Connex right there. And they forklifted the Connex onto an ammo trailer and we pulled it on there. So a lot of that comes from, you'd been on a lot of austere deployments before yeah, and you really. had that experience. Having been the weapons and tactics guy, you were aware of the, the modular capabilities, HC-130. You're aware of their modular uh, capabilities. So what that does, and we'll pull it to Mission Command, that gives you kind of a, a shared understanding of a lot of the way we can operate. And you're able to offer your boss these very creative solutions for the HC-130 and additionally for uh, putting your team together. So I got a question now. It seems that you were just the right guy for the job in a lot of this, these instances. So if I'm a commander at group wing level and I'm trying to create individuals that can create these creative solutions, it's sometimes it's hard to manifest experience. How would you ensure your airmen are able to create these? You got to give them a lot of experience and what are ways to do that? So General Mosley asked me one time, how many bear bases did you do? And I said seven. And he said, I think you're the only guy I've ever met that's done seven bear bases. And I don't know why. I, I mean, I guess the good Lord put me in the right spot at the right time. But, you know, the other interesting thing, fast forward to Afghanistan. I was a cadet survival squadron commander at the Air Force Academy. And one of the things I had to do was to learn how to put up GP medium tents. And we get to Jacobabad and the, I'm sorry, to Bagram and the Army kicks off a bunch of GP medium tents. None of my airmen have even ever seen one before because they had been living in temper tents throughout the whole RAAF construct. Yeah. Fairly amazing there. And so I said, okay, I'll show you how to set two of them up. And we did. So took my blouse off and a t-shirt out there and showed them how to set the tents up. So I don't know how you train anybody to do anything other than experience. But, but I will say this, many of the jobs I had in the Air Force, I didn't want I didn't want to be the chief of CVI at Kunsan. I wanted to be an ADO in the, in the squadron. But I learned a tremendous amount about how a wing operates by grading the whole wing instead of just the fighter squadron. So I guess those group and wing staff jobs, particularly once you start talking about having lead wings, are critical to the education. And I think maybe you should rotate guys and gals through those positions so they get to see what everyone does instead of just seeing what their specific unit does, particularly if you're trying to make multi-role airmen. As a young captain, you never want to leave the squadron. You always want to be doing that. From my much more limited experience, I can say that doctrine wasn't my first choice, but getting to visit with you and a lot of the other folks, I've really learned more than I ever thought I would. So yeah, it, sometimes it's important for younger officers to leave that squadron and get out there and see what's available. It certainly helped you here. What are some of your big challenges once you do get to Jacobabad? Having not been to sleep in two days, <laughs> sleep was a challenge. But once we got there, I mean, we landed there because of the time change pretty much in the middle of the night. And we immediately started turning the two aircraft that were there. And then I had to set up comms 
fortunately, some soft guys were there, so they let us basically move in next to them. We stole radios and phones and everything from, well, we didn't steal them. We took radios and phones from Al Jabber, and, and I had a Iridium phone. So then we had to establish communication so we could figure out what the ATO said because we were still flying off the ATO. And, you know, we had to figure out what our tankers were going to be and what the intel was. And the other thing that I was trying to figure out was what the graphics and control measures that the ground force was having. You know, when we first pulled in there, they're talking about, okay, phase line ginger and CP this. Without the graphics then it took much longer to establish situational understanding of what was going on. So that's one of the tough things about mission command. If you're going to have me go support somebody else and you can't tell me exactly what I'm supposed to do, once I get there, it's going to, my process will be slowed down as I try to build SA and, and kill the bad guys and not the friendlies. Right. Now I'm on the radio and the phone trying to figure out when I'm going to be able to build a bomb dump, I had to go site a bomb dump in the middle of the night. <laughs> so I can put my bombs here, et cetera. Plenty, plenty of work. And then we finally ate breakfast as the sun came up. We talk a lot about rock drills. You know, rock drills are very important in the Army. Going through an operation, which allows you to understand all those movements, the pieces, the lines of operation. One of the challenges as an airman, and I don't think it always translates so well, is that that flexibility comes with a cost. So we can support multiple operations, but that doesn't mean I can rock drill with every team I might possibly be supporting. So yeah, there is that spin up time that I've seen in soft, especially as a ISR guy, jumping from one op to the next op to the next op to the next op, all in a single sortie. So some of the other challenges, ultimately the Pakistanis, they initially said some number of aircraft, then it went to six and it went to five. I had to turn some aircraft around the second night that were en route, and they ended up having to fly all the way back to Al Jabber to land because they weren't allowed to land in theater. Yeah, because Bagram is no good at this point. Uh, no, Bagram's no good because we blew it up. Yeah. <laughs> so Bagram's got enough airfield for a C-130, but not enough for an A-10 at, because there was still CBU on the runway and all that stuff. Yeah. They were working on getting it cleared. So I'm foreshadowing there because I know after Jacobabad that this becomes your problem. There's one story you've told me in the past where you got the limited aircraft that's been approved by the Pakistani leadership. The way that goes is handled in Mark's podcast, so I don't want to get into that. But you have an aircraft come back after you've been told you got to get all A-10s out of here. Anaconda's over. You you've died, guys have done fantastic work. They say you got to get all your aircraft out of here. They're all gone. You're packing up. And then suddenly an A-10 shows up. thought maybe we could talk about this story and some of the things you had to do. So the night before, I get called by the U.S. ambassador to the United States. And he says, the president of the United States wants the A-10s out of Pakistan tomorrow. It's like, okay, sir. So I'm trying to figure out how to get my 70-some people out and get the A-10s out. So we spent a good deal of the night prepping and then we launched five A-10s out first thing in the morning. And then as we're tearing down, an A-10 shows back up in the pattern. And I get a phone call. They go, hey, the command post here wants to talk to you. And it's, it's the like ambassador staff. And they <laughs> go, hey, I thought we told you to get all the A-10s out. And it's like, there's one coming back. I don't have any idea what's going on. So he comes in and lands. His air refueling door doesn't work. So he couldn't 
tank and get back across the pond. So he lands. So I've got another pilot and a major who had flown MC-130s. Everyone else is gone, all the other pilots. I say to the major, run back right now and get on the flight planner and see if we clean this airplane off and download the bullets, if it can one hop from Jacobabad to Seeb. Seeb Oman. Oman. Oh, wow. And so he comes back and says, yeah, I can do it. The weather's good enough. I can do it and I'll have divert fuel. So this guy was an MC-130 guy. And I said, okay, go to bed right now. <laughs> yeah. Because basically 10 hours from now, whatever, you're getting up and we're launching you out. So we'd already blown through all the crew rest. So anyway, he went back and went to bed. So he's a former MC-130. He's A-10. Yeah, he's an A-10 guy now. But yeah, I mean, yeah. he'd flown yeah. MC-130s. He, he dealt with international right. stuff as opposed to the other guy was a lieutenant. I wasn't going to send the lieutenant out. And I wasn't going to leave the rest of the crew. I was trying to get back to Al Jabber because by that time I knew that I was already moving to Bagram as soon as I got back and refitted. And so here you're calculating risk. This is a higher yeah. risk sortie, but putting the right person yeah. in it. Yeah. So we're looking at downloading the aircraft and the maintenance chief says to me, sir, I don't have a casket for the Maverick, which is about a $90,000 munition. And I go, well, we need to download it anyway. And he goes, well, the regulations won't allow me to download it. And I said, okay, chief, here's the deal. <laughs> I'm going to go get my helmet. I'm going to take off. I'm going to fly this airplane over to that mountain and shoot it. And then we'll land again. And then you can download the rest of the stuff. Or you can download this one on sandbags. And hopefully we save it. But if we don't, then the President of the United States gets what he wants. Right. And so they downloaded the Maverick missile on sandbags. And ultimately, I believe it was shot later. And it didn't <laughs> hurt it. But, you know, it's like... I don't care what the reg says right now. It's funny. So, though, we always talk a lot about policy and regulations that are in place to increase efficiency, right? Efficiency yeah. has become a bad word. But in this case, if we couldn't download it, you had to shoot it. There's a hundred grand missile that gets completely wasted. Well, you know, the other the other risk thing that, that happened was all through pilot training, and I was on IP and T-37s, we talk about not flying in thunderstorms and all that stuff. Well, we had no alternates at Jacobabad. So we take off on one of the nights in Anaconda. So I was the second two ship. The first two ship went out, couldn't find the tanker but because the weather was terrible. We're in and out of St. Owens fire and ice and all this stuff. I mean, this is March in, in the mountains. And for airmen that don't understand the St. Owens fire, that is, that's a come to Jesus moment when the canopy looks like it's one of those static balls you had as a yeah, kid. Yeah. yeah, and normally right after that, you get struck by lightning. <laughs> but that didn't happen at night. But anyway, so we're coming back in and it's pouring down rain and, and the weather's bad and there's lightning off to the south. And then the power goes out on Jacobabad. I had always kind of had the end of the runway and taken the end of the runway coordinates. And there was a way in the A-10 that you could basically like fly it like you were going to bomb the end of the runway and just fly right. down to that point. But I had never landed on MEGs. I wasn't qualified to land on MEGs. My wingman, who is a lieutenant, was not qualified to land on MEGs. But I didn't have an option, so... I basically said to my wingman, okay, so we're going to smoke a Lucky out here for a minute. Put yeah. new batteries in your MBGs yeah. right now. Here's the way we're going to do it. I'm going to have my landing light on. And then when I get blinded by the 
the landing line, I'm going to raise my head right. and look underneath and land. And I said, if you see a big fireball, then don't do it. That way. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so we both landed. And that's probably the scariest landing I ever did in my life. But I mean, what choice did we have? Yeah. So I knew what the rules were. And I had to break them because I wasn't going to lose two airplanes. Yeah, absolutely not. Yeah. yeah. Or there was no place to go. For those that have not had the, the fortunate experience to be able to fly an aircraft or to, to land on NVGs, to kind of imagine what that's like. You're looking through two toilet paper rolls. And believe it or not, flying an aircraft, you absolutely have to have peripheral vision, especially in that flare, because you got to feel the word, world sinking. Otherwise, you're going to just crash into the runway. I, I remember my first landing on NVGs. I mean, I, it had been a great carrier landing. But we really, we hit the ground hard. It is a difficult thing to do. And here you are doing it after a long sortie at night. Yeah. Wow. In the rain. Yeah, in the rain. Wow. So uh, after Jacoba bad, you go, you go back, you do participate as much as you can in some of the AAR stuff. But then they send you forward again. I hope we could talk about some of the challenges you faced at Bagram. And if actually it ended up, you ended up writing a reg based on the lessons you learned there. Or not a reg, but a, a doctor. I'll so as a result of that, I ended up participating in the Airland Sea Application Center's air base opening and sustainment because right. they didn't have things like senior airfield authority at the time. But uh, I went in to, to Bagram. The soft personnel had been there and kind of set the station for us. But that we were in no way ready to bring fighters and C-130s and some of the helicopters in. And so I basically went in and built an airbase in a minefield, right. uh, which most of our Air Force doctrine doesn't say this is how you build an airbase in a minefield. But right. mine clearance was one of the most important things we had to deal with every day. I couldn't do anything until someone had gone in and cleared the mines out. And, and there were ostensibly a thousand mines in the area we were at and people many times would say there were a million mines in that in that valley wow. that had been left by both the Mujahideen, the Northern Alliance, the Taliban, and the Russians. And no one had any maps of any of the minefields. Oh man. And so mine clearance was one of the things that we had to deal with as and every time we blew one up it caused fought on the runway. Yeah. And so for me that airbase opening and building the tents and setting up water and setting up electricity and Cipernet and and running the tower and Talsi and setting up the fire department. That was always a, a big task for me. And sometimes I got to fly. Yeah. There's a couple of stories you told me about. There's no approach. There's no instrument. Translate this to non-pilot speak. There's there no, were no nav aids. No so nav aids. No TACAN. Right. There was no precision capability. And so I had Captain Kniep, who's now a retired colonel. She was my standby officer. And she basically went out and flew. Uh, at one point, they created a GPS approach, a GPS letdown approach. We pretty much accepted the risk of us using that because otherwise with no nav aids, there are many times we wouldn't have been able to land had it not been for uh, using that GPS approach. But the interesting thing here is, so you built this GPS or what we now call a self-contained approach. You built this approach and you can accept the risk as a senior airfield authority or I, I think you're dual-hatted here as the AEG, is that correct? Yeah, so I ended up as the group commander. And so you can accept the risk. But when then Transcom or AMC aircraft come in, they can't use this. Correct. Uh, and 
you can't accept authority for that. And, and so one of the points you've made is that we talk about the ACE construct and moving aircraft and sharing of the responsibility between multiple commands, but you cannot accept risk for those you are not in command of. And so this becomes a significant problem as you're trying to move cargo around, not only this GPS, but the locks uh, situation. So I thought maybe we'd talk a little bit about that. At the time, Air Mobility Command rules said that you could not fly a liquid oxygen bottle on a cargo aircraft with passengers. You had to fly the plane essentially empty with the exception of whoever was taking care of the locks bottles. And I didn't have an oxygen plant on Bagram. So every third day we had to fly to Sieb in Oman and refill up the oxygen tanks and then fly an empty C-130 back with no passengers on it, which basically became kind of a problem flying empty aircraft when, when we needed so much, but there was no option there right. because I couldn't get a waiver. Right. You're trying to run the air base, but you don't have the authority to do some of the things that you need to. Yeah, none of those air, air cargo aircraft were opcon or take on to the 455th AEG. They were, yeah. all, they were all transients coming in and out. And so, therefore, they had to follow their own rules. Right. Yeah. And so that's, I, I think, you know, as we talk about distributed control, the ACE construct with all these outlying bases and the movement around, the, the whole idea of the authorities or fluid authorities to senior airfield authorities or, or whoever's in command positions at these various locations. That's something that I think the Air Force probably needs to, to discuss and really be thinking about is how are we going to pass the authority along when we start moving and hopscotching along all these, whether they're enduring bases or contingency locations. You know, would you agree that that's something? That well, first off, I really think agile combat employment is probably not going to be possible if it's not joint. Okay. And so if it's going to be a joint effort, uh, I mean, if the Army's going to supply our gas, if you're in an island and the Navy's going to supply something else or whatever it might be, then there's got to be joint doctrine for that that allows whoever's in charge to deal with all the multi-domain or joint all-domain aspects of ACE because it's not just the Air Force, it's delivering its own gas or and or wet winging out of Maybe a Marine 130 or soft asset, uh, there's got to probably be a joint solution as opposed to a single service solution to agile combat employment. That's just my two cents kind of having done it. El said this has been really great. There's just a thousand questions I would like to ask you, but I can't monopolize your time. You're a busy man. You're here at Maxwell and everybody wants to talk to you. But what I'd like to do kind of in our last question here is open it up. One thing you said to me before we did this podcast is that you said, hey, it's old guys aren't going to be around forever. So please ask questions and uh, glean from us what you can. And so I'd like to kind of give you the opportunity here in closing to just say, just speak directly to airmen and we'll kind of you know, future leaders, commanders who are going to be operating in this less well-defined environment, a more contested environment, a, a larger scale than what we've seen over the last 20 years. Do you have some advice that you want rolling around in their heads as they move into these complex leadership roles? If I was to give advice to a young airman, I would say that don't ever tell your boss that's not your job. Because the thing that made both the opening at Bagram and what we did at Jacobabad so successful was that everybody pitched in and did what had to be done. 
I dug latrines right there with my with my airmen. And one of the neatest things that ever happened to me is I'm actually digging a latrine and a, a spec four from the army comes up and says, hey, I'm looking for the A-10 commander. And I said, how can I help you? Because I actually thought he was probably there to steal something. Uh, and he said, my dad said I needed to call you and find you and tell you what happened to me. And I said, who's your dad? And his dad was a good friend of mine who had been in my flight at England Air Force Base. His name was uh, Robert Brown, goes by Muck, who's now deceased, sadly. But he went and explained the night that the A-10 saved him and his unit's life because he was getting mortared. And I was able to introduce that young man to the two A-10 pilots that saved his life, which was pretty cool. Uh, and they both yeah. got DFCs for that. But as the young airmen are out there looking around, we, we also have to remember that even though we're in the Air Force, that one life in the ground is worth one life in the air and vice versa. So we have a job to do. The Navy has a job. The Marines have a job. The Army has a job. And, and if you say, well, I only signed up to do this, then when the stuff hits the fan, you're not much used to a commander if he can't handle you a, you know, a job. And, and I always found out as a colonel that if I went and grabbed a shovel and started digging a train, some airmen would try to take it away from me. And it's like, no, there's another shovel over there. Let's dig together until someone else comes along. So whatever needs to be done is what you need to learn to do and, and never stop learning. That's going to do it for this week's Lessons Learned podcast. The show is recorded, mixed, and produced by the LeMay Center's Doctrine Outreach section. Special thanks to LSID, the LeMay Center, and Air University. And as always, the views expressed by our guests or hosts are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Air University, the Air Force, or any government agency. I'm Nicholas Underwood. We will see you next time.